When the Apostle Paul writes that light, when light shines out of darkness, God shines in our hearts the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. There's a line in the confession that we're going to use in a moment that reads like this. May we not be careless of your favor or heedless of your glory, even for those in whom the light of the gospel has shown that we might see the glory of God, the caution there and the prayer that we offer today is recognizing that we are often careless of his favor and heedless of that glory. And when those two conditions merge together, careless of his favor and heedless of his glory, we lose our way. And we lose sight of the face of the glory of Christ. To to be careless of his favor is to take it for granted. To be heedless of his glory is to not even recognize it. We're going to use those words together as we confess our sin and our need for cleansing and forgiveness.
Amen. Our reading from God's holy word this morning comes from the Gospel of Mark. Mark chapter 1, beginning in verse 14 and continuing to verse 20. Please give attention to the reading of God's holy word. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you, I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James the son of Zebedee and John his brother, who were in their boat mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. You may be seated. That third verse that we sang just a moment ago from All for Jesus catches me every time. Worldlings prize their gems of beauty, cling to gilded toys of dust, boast of wealth and fame and pleasure. Only Jesus will I trust. Oh, I would pray that that would be our heart's cry today as we come into the presence of the Lord. Uh, in the midst of this word that he has given to us in Mark chapter 1. And we would find, as it were, the grip that we have on life and upon even the toys and the treasures of this life that seem so special and seem so precious to us that the grip would be loosened and we would find ourselves trusting in Jesus Christ in a fresh and powerful and even transformative new way as we come before his word together today. I want to actually just pray to that end that the Lord would meet us here as we spend some time in this word that he would guide us and he would, he would measure out, as it were, the grace and the truth that are in this passage for us, for each and every soul in this room. So before we go to this word, let's pray together and ask for the Lord's blessing. Father in heaven, we would ask now that you would send your Holy Spirit, who alone is the illuminator and interpreter of your word, to enlighten our very hearts to the power of this truth. Would you come and meet us right now in this hour? Would we find ourselves having moments of great uh, penetration by the power of the Spirit, awakening to the beauty and the believability of the Lord Jesus Christ, that it would rise up within us to be followers of Him, and not just followers, but fishers of men, those who would declare and proclaim the glories of the gospel to others. Lord, for that to happen, mighty change has got to sweep through this room. So we would ask that the Holy Spirit would blow, that the wind would come, and that we would be caught up in it by your power. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. It's amazing here that Mark gives to us the very first words um, written there, if you have a red-letter edition of the Bible, written in red, the very first words spoken of the preaching ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. We have it right here. Isn't it interesting that the very first words that God gives us out of the mouth of Jesus in the Gospel of Mark, the first gospel written in chronology, the first gospel written, the very first words recorded in Scripture regarding the, off the lips of the Lord Jesus Christ are... The time has fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. These are the first words out of the gate with regards to the preaching ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. It tells us something, too, about the priority of preaching, doesn't it? Of the communication of the gospel that Mark would start here. Here's what he wants us to know. A summary statement of the very heart of Jesus' teaching. That he has come at just the right time. And he brings the very rule of God with him. And he calls us as his people to repent. And to trust in the good news of the gospel. 
As you see those words there on the page in verse 15, I want you to see that we're seeing something really special take place in history according to Mark's writing here in Mark 1.15. Why do I say in history? Because there's two words in Greek to describe the word time or that are given to us in vocabulary in Greek for the word time. One is the word chronos. It's from where we get the word chronology. Or something being chronological, it means linear, or one thing coming after another, as history is. And then there's another word that's only used uh, 15 times in the New Testament with regards to time, and it's the word kairos. And that's the word used here in Mark 1.15, the word kairos. And it means to speak of time as being opportune, or something being of the right occasion. So, for instance, we might look in the farmer's almanac for this year in planting our, our spring garden, and we might have found that the best time to plant vegetables was after Easter and before Mother's Day. That would have been the occasion or the opportune time to plant. We might say that at a wedding, it's an opportune time or the right occasion to celebrate. We might say at a funeral, it's the opportune time or the right occasion to mourn. It means to say that there's a right time and a right place for a particular activity. Jesus has come in a kairos moment. He has come at the right time. The time is fulfilled. We might say the time is pregnant with meaning. It is significant. It is in the language of Paul in Galatians chapter 4, verse 4, that Jesus has come in the fullness of time, he says, born of a woman. Now, when he says it that way, he doesn't merely mean that the, the calendar is moving from B.C. to A.D. and we're starting back over, though that may be a chronological way to look at the fullness or the cross-secting of time. But what he's clearly appealing to here is redemptive history. All of Old Testament and redemptive history, everything that's been spoken in the Scriptures up to now, have all been pointing to this time. This is the time of fulfillment. And notice that the time of fulfillment, according to the Lord Jesus Christ in His preaching, is a time where the kingdom is at hand. It's a time that the kingdom is at hand. This is a mark of the fullness of time that the kingship of God is upon the first century, the people who are here witnessing Jesus in His preaching. Now, kingdom is clearly a phrase that's used for the sphere or the rulership of a king. The, the, the geographical or context, the borders through which a king would rule. This is his, his reign, where his, where his boundary markers are. That would be considered his kingdom. And as Jesus comes... He proclaims that the kingdom is here. It's at, it's at hand. It's, it's coming towards you. It's drawing into this time and space. And he's doing that because he comes as the king. He comes as the king. And what Mark is presenting us here is anywhere where Jesus is, the kingdom has come. Anywhere the preaching of the gospel comes, the kingdom is coming. A place where God's rule is made manifest. Now the whole of this passage that we're looking at today from verses 14 to, to 20, but actually the whole of the Gospel of Mark is around this theme of kingdom. It's why we've actually entitled this series, Follow Me. It's a word from a king or word from a Lord that he is to be followed. He is a ruler who is over us. We are his subjects. We are to do his bidding. And what we see throughout the Gospel of Mark is that time and again, Jesus exercises kingly power, whether he is casting out a demon and showing that he has powerful over the king of dark kings, the, the realm of darkness, whether he is healing someone of the effects of the brokenness of the fall, a lame person, a blind person, or whatever is taking place. He's pushing back the effects of darkness and of brokenness. Whether he calms the wind or calms the waves, he's showing that he is powerful over a creation that is now disordered, that should have been ordered according to the kingship of God. All throughout the Gospel of Mark, the signs of Jesus are not merely flashes in the pan. 
He's not a huckster walking around to try to get attention by doing a few fancy tricks. That's not what Jesus is. He's not peddling something here. He is coming as king of heaven and earth. And he's showing you that when his rule comes, things get healed. Things get subdued. And evil is overcome. He's showing you the kind of kingdom that he's come to establish. Now, what we're going to see in this passage is that how is it that we can become aligned with his kingdom? If wherever his kingdom comes in the preaching of the gospel in the presence of Jesus, if that is the case, how can we be aligned with his kingdom? What would it look for us to walk according to the alignment of his kingdom and be used as instruments as doing his bidding within the work of the kingdom? That's really what we want to look at from verses 14 to 20 this morning. And so I want to look at them together with you, this section, under these three headings. I want you to see that when King Jesus comes, number one, he confronts our rebellion. He confronts our rebellion. Number two, when King Jesus comes, he calls us to daily submission. He calls us to daily submission, number two. And thirdly, when King Jesus comes, he changes us into his likeness. That's three C's, in case you note takers out there need a little help. Confronts our rebellion, calls us to daily submission, and changes us into his likeness. Now we're going to start with comes to confront our rebellion. When we are talking here about the kingdom of God coming, time being fulfilled, this would have been music to the ears of the first century Israelites. They have been listening to the prophets for hundreds of years, even going back two millennia to the covenant promises of Abraham back at the opening chapters of Genesis. They've been waiting for an anointed one, a Messiah, a prophet likened to Moses but greater, a king likened to David but greater. They've been looking for this messianic figure who is going to right wrongs and bring back the glory of the people of Israel. When they heard the time is fulfilled... The Kairos moment is now. The kingdom of God is at hand. They would have said to themselves, Oh yes, Caesar's days are numbered. Rome is about to fall. Those Gentiles who deserve everything that's coming to them is just about to come. People are going to know again the glory of Israel. The days like unto the glory days of King David are coming again. This is our guy, the anointed one. He's going to put Israel on the map exactly where we should be. That's how they would have heard it. Because they were looking for a geopolitical ruler. They were looking for someone in political position. They were looking for someone who would come and would exercise political power that would turn the clock back, so to speak, and bring back the glory days of the people of Israel. In fact, even after Jesus' resurrection, the disciples don't seem to have fully gotten it. Right before he ascends into the heavenly places in Acts chapter 1, you remember the last question the disciples have for him? Okay, now that you're resurrected and uh, everything seems like it's back together. We, we'd gone back to fishing, as you recall, but now that you're back from the grave, I guess we'll get on with the mission. Is now the time you're going to restore the glory of Israel? And you, you must, I mean, if, if, you know, in my fallenness, I just see Jesus rolling his eyes. Now, Jesus is much more kind and patient than I am. So he didn't roll his eyes at his disciples. But I would be rolling my eyes and going, guys, we've been going over this for years now. That's not what's happening here. I've come to establish a kingdom that is not of this world. A kingdom that is not established by political leaders or geopolitical nations and exercising political power. It's actually by the Spirit. I'm going to rain the Spirit down upon you. The gospel, the message of good news and the announcement of redemption. This is how this kingdom is advanced. In fact, the, the enemy that I've come to free you from is not Rome. It's from a much sinister enemy called sin and called death. I am advancing a kingdom at a much deeper level, much more profound level. that can't be bottled up or, or held with hemmed in within one little spot of land or with one person. It is a, like, a, it's like a lion that's been unleashed in the world that's going forth to declare the rulership of God as the gospel extends to every kindred, tribe, tongue, and nation. This kingdom is not of this world, which is why... As Mark is here speaking to um, us about the call of the Lord Jesus Christ and giving us a summary of his gospel, he doesn't say, notice, the time is fulfilled. 
The kingdom of God is at hand. Caesar is going down. Doesn't say that, does it? Or the you Gentiles better watch out because Israel is on the rise. Doesn't say that, does it? You know what's interesting about the preaching of the Lord Jesus Christ here? Is after he says the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand, the very next word out of his mouth is repent. And he says it to everybody. Jews and Gentiles alike. Male and female. Strong and weak. Rich and poor. Every person he calls to repent, which is an indication of the kind of kingdom that he's come to bring. He's come to establish a kingdom where everybody in the world is on the wrong side. That's what he's saying. Everybody in the world is on the wrong side. If a king shows up and his first words to you are, repent, then you know you've got work to do. You're not on the inside. You're not on God's side. You're serving another king, he's saying. You're serving another kingdom. You're under a different power. You are actually, by virtue of your existence, in resistance to me. You were born in sin. You come forth from your mother's womb in sin, David writes in Psalm 51. The kingdom that he has come to establish is a kingdom of a spiritual sort where sin is being eradicated and taken care of. Righteousness is being granted and acceptance with God is being born. The kind of kingdom that he's trying to establish deals with the very center issue of the problem with each of our lives, which is what the history of redemption teaches us is that we live our lives as if we are the kings and queens of our lives. You see, that's really what's wrong with the world. You know that famous quote from G.K. Chesterton, right? When he was asked to write an article on what's wrong with the world, and he very simply wrote in two words, Sir, I am. I am what's wrong with the world. Meaning, I am a sinner. I am not as I was designed to be. I, by my very existence, stand at odds with the rulership of God. I live for me. When we hear that language of repentance, I think it's so easy for us to think. He's telling us to say we're sorry for the bad things we've done. Now, it's included. Most certainly, we are to repent or turn from the bad things we've done unto God for forgiveness. That's for sure. But he's saying something much deeper than that. He's saying, by virtue of my kingdom coming, you need to repent. He's saying there's actually inside of you a rule or a power. And that power is always pulling you to think about and serve you. On the throne room of your heart is you. And that's what's wrong. Not what you've done. Of course you've done wrong things. But it's because you are living for you. Listen, this is the very essence of the fall in Genesis chapter 3, isn't it? When the evil one is tempting to Eve and he says, You won't surely die if you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. What does Eve do? She says, Well, you know, God who is my king and of whom I serve and who puts the parameters around the boundaries of where it is that I should live has told me this is the way it ought to be and I will fully submit to him because I know his way is life and his way is godliness and his way is joy. That's what she said, right? No. She said, Actually, I'll define the terms of what's good and right. And I decided that the fruit looks good for food. It's desirable to eat. It could even make one wise. I will be the king of this decision. I will be the queen of this decision. When Jesus is coming, he's acknowledging and recognizing that what sin is is not merely bad thoughts or words, or deeds, sin is a principle or power within us that is constantly pulling us to serve ourselves. When we have been designed as the image of God, 
designed to live under the rulership of God and for His glory and for His priority. And so what He's actually calling us to, if you can see it in the midst of the passage, when He says the kingdom of God is at hand, He's saying to you and me, in order for you to enter my kingdom, you're going to have to be dethroned. You're going to have to be dethroned. Now, if you can understand the language, even in the Scripture, of salvation, that makes all the sense in the world. We, we use the word saved. If you've been in a Christian community for any period of time, you've probably heard the word saved. And, 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 and the question in behind or the assumption behind the word saved is that you need someone to do something for you that you can't do for yourself. Like that's, that's the idea. So if someone's getting rescued, right? They're, 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 they're drowning in the, in the sea, they, and they can't save themselves. They need someone to come and save them. That is, they need something outside of them, a power that is greater than them, to rescue them out of their condition and bring them into life. That's how we use the word just typically in terms of the culture. Now, what that means is, is that if you are going to be saved, you've got to begin to relinquish your ability to live life on your own as king or queen of your life. And you've got to recognize you need a power outside of you to come and do for you what you can't do for yourself. You need a power greater, a greater king in your life. You need a greater queen in your life, so to speak. Someone over you who can truly save you. That's the picture here in the Scriptures, that we need someone who can transfer us from the kingdom of darkness. Notice that language? Into the kingdom of light, into the kingdom of the beloved Son. You see, the very first thing that Jesus comes and does when He speaks to us about the Gospels, He confronts our rebellion. You may not have thought of yourself as a rebellious type, but the Scripture does. The Scripture does. Any sin that we've ever committed, any impulse that's ever been for us rather than for God is an impulse that ultimately is living for self rather than God and at its heart is rebellion. And so what Jesus does is He comes and He confronts our rebellion. But I want you to see, secondly, that not only does He confront our rebellion, He calls us to daily submission. He calls us to daily submission. Now, one of the things that's interesting in the Scriptures is that salvation, and maybe you've heard this, but it's good to be reminded if so, salvation has multiple tenses in the Scripture. Sometimes salvation is referred to in the past tense. You have been saved, for by grace you have been saved, we're told in Ephesians 2, 8, 9. But you know, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 8, salvation is put in the present tense. Listen to the way Paul writes it. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, notice the present ongoing, to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. It is the, it is the power of, of the Lord. Now, for those of you who identify yourselves today as believers in Christ, trusted alone, uh, for Him alone in salvation... And you know that the moment that you were saved, the moment you trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ for, as, as your Lord and Savior, you were saved in that moment. But did all of your sin go away? No, it didn't. Now, don't lie to me. It didn't go away. You're still battling the reality of that old power within you. Paul calls it the flesh. In some ways, after you were saved, the moment that you trusted in Christ... The struggle inside of you actually got harder, didn't it? It actually got harder. Because it used to, it was just real easy to live for self. You didn't have any struggle. You just, just kind of did it. It was really natural. But now that you've come to know Christ, you have a principle of life within you. And you've tasted the sweetness and the joy of what it means to live for Him rather than live for you. But you still got the remnants of flesh, the old man inside of you, warring against. And you feel a tug, a tension that is there within. And so very often there's a holy war that's kind of roiling within you when you know I need to do this, but I want to do this. But I also want to do this. What should I do? Oh, you know, and you're battling it, right? And you're walking through life. And life really feels like there's a war going on uh, within you. 
That's the reality of that you are being saved. You are growing into the salvation that already is yours. You're growing into it. Now, when that happens, what's going on is a struggle to submit to the kingship of Jesus Christ. It's still, you're, you've already given your life over to the Lord Jesus Christ, but you know what happens every Monday? You take it all back. And over the week, you, you give it back to Him. Right? You, 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 as we sometimes say here at Cornerstone, every day you have to wake up and become a Christian again. You have to remember what is true. Because you're right faced with the battle the moment your eyes wake up in the morning. You know what you ought to do, but you know what you want to do. And you're battling those two. And the goal and the hope of your life is that more of your ought to's become actually your want to's. The things that you right now go, I know I ought to do that. But that doesn't sound much like a want, does it? And you go, I really want you know, to sleep another hour. But I really need and ought to get out of bed because i got to get to work or i got to get to school. I'm supposed to do what it is I'm supposed to do. In the moments where you actually are finding what you ought to do to become increasingly what you want to do, meaning that the will of God is aligning within your heart and the alignment's beginning to produce joy in you, you actually know that you are being saved. You're growing into The salvation that is yours. Your heart is slowly but surely being won over by King Jesus. He is taking over more of your soul. He's taking over more of your life. You see, to follow Jesus as he in this passage is issuing the call to Peter and to Andrew, to James and to John to follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. As he issues that call to follow me, it's an issue from a king to a servant. It's an issue of a master to a servant. It's that as you follow me, your whole life begins to be held together as me as the reference point of your life. Not you, but me. So when a dilemma comes your way, you don't ask, do I like this? Do I not like this? Do I want to do this? Do I not want to do this? Your reference point becomes, what does Jesus say about this? Is this pleasing to him? Because there's nothing more pleasing to me than pleasing him. He becomes the reference point for your life. When that happens, pain is going to enter your world. It's not always going to be delightful and happy. You notice what happens in this passage? When he issues the call, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. What does he say? They immediately drop their nets and follow Jesus. What's an illustration or a picture of? They're walking away from their very livelihood. The life they've always known. Toward a life that is unknown. Follow me. And I will make you become fishers of men. We have no idea what that that journey is going to be. You know what? Simon and Peter and James and John are going to find out it's actually a really difficult journey. All of them are going to be tempted and tried. All of them are going to struggle. In fact, their following of Jesus is going to look a lot like a cross-bearing life. Because they're following a crucified Savior. But they don't know that yet. In these early days, as he says to them, follow me, he says, I want you to know you can't follow me and just tag on the life you've always had. It will require you to leave things behind. Often the things that you want to do. Now, I want you to see how reversed, how reversed the call of Jesus is to the way we think about our lives. Think, think of your prayer life for just a second. How often are your prayers filled with your life Asking God to make it better. Just, just do a, a quick inventory. Lord, this is my life. And it's precious to me. And I just really love your help to accomplish what I want and what I've given my life and energy to. How much of our prayer lives are filled like that? That's like, okay, Lord, you are a resource to help me get my life that I want. That's not what Jesus is saying here. Jesus is saying, Leave the life that you've known and follow me. It's fundamentally different, isn't it? He's saying becoming a follower of me is like leaving your whole life behind. 
James and John were told they have to leave their father behind. They're leaving their families behind. They're going to a place that they don't even know yet. They don't know where this adventure or this journey is going to take them. There are sacrifices in the midst of it. So if you're going to follow Jesus, what actually has to happen in the soul? Jesus has got to become more beautiful and attractive to you than the things of this world. That's what's got to happen. A shift has got to take place in your soul to where following him makes reasonable, better sense to you. Following him is more persuasive and plausible to you. Following him is more delightful to to you than the things that you would have to leave behind. Meaning you've got to find Jesus to be your new family, your new home. As James and John are leaving their home, they've got to find their home in the call of Jesus. As Peter and Andrew are leaving their work behind, they've got to find their calling in the midst of following Jesus. See, when Jesus enters our life, he is unwilling to simply be used as a resource for the rest of the aspects of your life that you would like him to fix. He is your life. That's the call of discipleship. He is your life. So here's a question that I want to just raise before we go on to our final point. Where in your life are you presently resisting the kingship of the Lord Jesus Christ? What's coming to mind when I ask that question? You know what it is. Where are you presently resisting the kingship of the Lord Jesus Christ in your life? Now, let me, let me unpack that. Where is it that you know he has called you to something and you're just going, no, I'm not doing that. What is it in your life that you would say, if he called me to that and I had to give up this, there's no way I could do it. Whatever that is, is exactly what he wants you to put on the table. Whatever that is. It may be money. It might be relationships. It might be a job. It might be status. I don't know what it is. But he says, you must lay all of who you are at my feet. In a sense, lay your life down and take up my cross daily and follow me. Because until you find me to be your life, all of those things will be hindrances to you. Now, you might be saying to yourself, does this mean that if I'm a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ and I have to leave my job, I have to leave my family, I have to you know, move to another place? No, not necessarily, but maybe. Not necessarily, but maybe. But what it does mean is your job is not merely a job. It's an opportunity or a vocation by which you can exercise the witness bearing of the Lord Jesus Christ to everyone around you to be able to display His glory in order that you might fish for men. You're not merely a nurse. You're not merely a plumber. You're not merely a lawyer or a businessman. You are now... A disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ fishing for men cleverly disguised as a nurse. Cleverly disguised as a landscape architect. Or whatever it is you are. You you are in the the arraignment or the, the robes of a particular worldly calling. But you're not there for a worldly calling. You have been... You've been, you've been called by Jesus. You're a follower of Him. You are working unto a completely different master. For completely different purposes. You're allowing Jesus to become the reference point for the whole of your life. So notice first, when we, Jesus comes in His kingdom and when He works in our hearts and our lives, He confronts our rebellion. But secondly, it's a daily work of submitting to Christ. If you can see these two things together, what Jesus is calling all of us to is a dethroning of ourselves and an enthroning of himself within us. That's what he's calling us to. A dethroning of ourselves and an enthroning of himself inside of us. Now listen, if this happens, if this work was actually to happen in your life, here's what you would become, a fisher of men. Now, I want you to notice how it's phrased. Look there at verse 17. I learned it differently, memorized it differently, which is why I have a hard time coming back to this verse and reading it in the translation this morning. But the translation this morning is actually correct. Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. How many of you are like, 
It's not really how I memorized it. I will, I, will, I will make you to be fishers of men, right? Something like that. And it reads like, boom, it's going to happen. <laughs> you follow me, and guess what? Presto changeo. You will become a fisher of men. That's actually not the tense of the passage. The tense is progressive, which is what the ESV is trying to get across here. When you follow me, I will make you become. Now notice the interesting phraseology there. I will make you. That feels very kingly. You feel authority coming down on you? I will make you. Like it's not going to be a choice. I will make you a fisher of men. But notice what the way he puts it. I will make you become. It's going to be a process. It's going to be a process. Now here's what's so beautiful about that. Is that the kind of kingship and authority that Jesus exercises is not with an iron fist. He's not going to come make you become a fisher of men. He's going to make you. He's going to grow you into a fisher of men. And how is he going to do that? He's going to fish for you. He's going to fish for you. Every day. Every day through his word. Every day through his spirit. He's going to go doggedly after you. He's going to woo you by the power of his grace. He's going to draw and open up your eyes to the beauty of who He is. To the wonder of His call. He's going to shape you after His likeness, you see. What is Jesus? He is the greatest fisher of men ever. What did He do? He left His family behind. His Father in heaven. Just like He's calling James and John to do. He left his work on the throne room floor, as it were, to take up a new calling. What? A calling to be made like you and me. To live the life that we couldn't live. To save us from the inevitable death and condemnation that was coming our way. He has been the ultimate fisher of men. So if you follow him, here's what I can guarantee will happen. You will become a fisher of men. Because no one can follow Jesus and not become a fisher of men. It's impossible because Jesus is himself a fisher of men. Now what's remarkable about that is the process piece is that right now some of us more or less in this room are equipped to be fishers of men, right? Some of us go, I'm just not good at, quote unquote, sharing the gospel. We might put it that way. And we might think of that word evangelism and a little shimmer goes up our spine. Like, ooh, what are we going to do with that? You know, thinking along those lines. Part of what Jesus is going to do through the gospel of Mark is get Peter and Andrew and James and John ready after three years of following him to be ready to be fishers of men. And guess what they're going to go through? All kinds of trials. All kinds of sufferings, all kinds of difficulties, all kinds of mistakes. You know how the disciples look like buffoons. I mean, when you read the, the, the Gospels, they just look like buffoons. I mean, like these guys never get it, right? It's just page after page after page. And we just go, look, they never get it. And that's exactly who we are. We just never get it. And Jesus patiently begins to shape us and craft us and get us fit for the work. Not because... We're perfectly equipped. We're going to be absolutely ready. But because he's going to so doggedly form us into his image and shape us more into his likeness that over time we will not help be an attracting force to others. And we will become fishers of men. Do you know how you become fishers of men? Let me just tell you. The daily work of dethroning yourself and enthroning Christ is the fitness to get ready to be a fisher of men. That's the work. That's the work. Because right now, you know when you don't, you're afraid to evangelize? You know, you know this feeling, afraid to share the gospel? You don't know how it's going to go. Maybe you're not smart enough. Maybe you don't have the words. Maybe this person will hate you, whatever the situation is. Do you know what keeps you from doing it? Fear. Fear of what? Probably fear of self. Rejection. Uh, fear of inadequacy, as if God can't use weakness. Fear of all kinds of things, because why? You're on the throne. But if he was on the throne, 
And you trusted him to use weakness. And it wasn't in your strength, but in his strength where he accomplished and advanced his kingdom. Might you begin to do what the woman at the well did, which is immediately after the Lord Jesus Christ presents to her that he is the Messiah and she comes to know Christ. She goes into the towns and she can't quit blabbering about Jesus. And others come out to meet him. And many, it says, come to know him through her word. She was not trained in evangelism. She was in love with Jesus. And she couldn't help not telling others about her love for Jesus and his love for her. When people watch you, And you begin to dethrone yourself and enthrone Christ. Do you know what becomes your heart? Here's what becomes your heart. You become more interested in other people than yourself. Because Jesus was more interested in you than in himself. That's what happens. Have you ever been in the presence of someone who like actually really cared about you? Like they were undistracted by themselves. They just loved you. They listened to you. They cared for you. They only wanted what was about you. They were only interested about you. How did it, what did it do to your heart? It melted it. It drew you to them. What if you cared for people the way Jesus has cared for you? And you found that when you went fishing, it was like fish jumped in the boat. Because they picked up Jesus when they were with you. He was all about you. He was all about you. In following Jesus, this is the picture that we're given in the Scriptures. That if we're going to become fit for the work that He's called us to, we're going to have to get close to Him. We're going to have to be in the process every day of dethroning ourselves and enthroning Him. And friends, that's a hard work. In fact, I want to confess to you that it's a work that's still very much in process in my own life. Some of you know that just a handful of months ago, we found out we were expecting our fifth child, the Sheridan family. Much to our surprise, um, we found that out. I'm 40, in case you didn't know that, which means I'm old for these sort of things. But as soon as we heard that news, or as soon as I heard that news, the words out of my mouth were, praise God. God's clear in Psalm 127 that children are a heritage from the Lord. They're a blessing. He's unequivocal about it. Absolutely thrilled. Number five is on the way. A couple weeks later, we have a blood test. Remember this. The blood test indicated that the child is about a 90% chance of being Down syndrome. 90% chance. That hit me really heavy when I first heard those words. I can go back to the doctor's office. And the moment those words came forth, I remember the fears rushing into my head. I also remember listening to the voice inside of my head that said things like, well, I guess your life won't turn out the way you thought it would. Maybe you won't get to accomplish that doctorate degree after all. Maybe you won't get to do that travel you had long thought of. Maybe at 70, when you still have a child at home who's 30, and you won't even know how to take care of them, how are we going to have money for this, energy and time? I'm embarrassed to tell you I was full of myself. Full of myself. Do you catch those fears? They're all about me. And about 10 minutes later, the Lord stopped me. And he said, why don't you think about that child? Wow. Because I'm thinking about that child, Nate. Nate, I've got a mission with that child. And everything I bring into your life is a calling to follow me. And I have granted to you a new calling. Follow me, Nate. I'm on the throne room of your heart. I will take care of you. I will do more than you can hope or imagine. And you know what I begin to feel? A light yoke. An easy yoke. 
Because all of a sudden, Jesus, my king, had come back to the throne of my heart. And all of a sudden, I was ready to demonstrate his love and his grace to me. I was ready in every way to be used for his mission, for his purposes, to be a fisher of men. Now, friends, it is a pain in my heart that's embarrassed to tell you of how selfish I am. But there's a joy in my heart to share with you that all of that selfishness, Jesus has paid for. He's paid for it. And that, that recognition rises up within me a strong desire to live every day following him. Following him. That's my story. Just right now. Just this little moment. What's yours? What's yours? How is the Lord calling you to more? What is he calling you to set forward and answer his call? That you might become a fisher of men. Father in heaven, we would ask you to do that in our hearts right now. To begin to make that shift to happen. Where less of us, dethroning of us happens and enthroning of you. That we might be a people who are fit by the power of your spirit to be fishers of men. Lord, hear this prayer and answer it. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.
On the night that he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread and he broke it. He gave it to his disciples and he said, Take and eat. This is my body. Do this in remembrance of me. After supper, he took the cup also and said, This is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for many. Drink ye all of it in remembrance of me. Remembering the Lord Jesus Christ and his victory over our greatest enemies, remembering his summons as our king to follow him, we come now to this, his table, and we follow the crucified one all the way to the resurrection. Praise be to God. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we do now ask you to set apart these ordinary elements of bread and wine for the holy use of the Lord's Supper. Come and meet with us here and grant us grace, especially our dear sister Beatrice, as today she is welcome to the Lord's table for the first time and feeds on you by faith. Would you meet her here, nurture her and strengthen her, fit her for the walk ahead, and use her as a mighty instrument, as a great fisherman in the kingdom of heaven. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll be led to the Lord's Supper uh, by our ushers who will lead us row by row. Let's come to the Lord's table.